And now, joining us live from the comfort of her own living room, it's Ida February for the Dear February Show. No, Betsy. No, I love you. I love you. Hi. How are you doing today? My name is Ida Fevrier, the host of the Dear Fevrier podcast, and welcome to the fifth, fifth episode. Time flies, doesn't it? We're in September. As I've said in previous episodes, I am a crisp fall kind of girl. I have been loving these last couple of days, the slow end of summer, that point of the year where you're like, did I enjoy myself? Did I make most of my summer? The last two episodes I did were very emotional. Not emotional, I would say personal. I was very calm and collected, someone that I'm not in the daily. I'm often scattered yet organized. I talk too much, which is why I'm externalizing through posting my nonsense on the internet. I love September. I love going back to work, going back to school, getting ready mentally, thinking this is going to be a good year, and then three weeks later, regretting it. But yeah, my last two episodes were very chill, very personal. It's time to judge it up a bit. My move went really well. I'm in a new space. I feel happy. I feel inspired. I've been cooking for myself. Today, it's going to be more peppy. It's going to be more energy. We're going to be talking about fun things. Although it's Monday night and I've just had Chinese food and I'm having beer in my bed. Today, we're talking about fashion, darling. We're talking about trends, style. Although if you were to see me walk down the street, I wouldn't say I exude the most creative style. I like a good basic. I like a good pair of denim. I like a plain white tee. I like a good pair of shoes. But in my mind, I'm a fashionista. In my mind, if I had the budget, I would dress incredibly well. However, money cannot be an excuse to not dress the way you want to dress. The best pieces I own were under 10 pounds. But also, clothing is about comfort. When you think about it, back in the day, clothes were meant for protection from the cold, from enemies. I think one time I was high and I was thinking about the concept of a handbag. When you think about it, a handbag or yeah, a bag of any kind is an object that stops gravity from your things to fall on the ground. And then one person was like, let's make it cute. Although necessarily in my day-to-day life, I'm not fascinated about fashion. I'm not very outgoing in my style. I like basics. I like to feel comfortable, but obviously I like to feel good and feel like I look good. But as I've mentioned in previous episodes, I come from a fashion family. Not saying that my parents were extravagant either, um, but they worked in the industry. My father was a photography agent. My mother was a stylist. I've always been surrounded by that universe. And I thought that I was meant to work in it. For me, it was just inherent that I would be working in the same industry as my parents. I just saw like a comfort and ease to it. I understood the industry at a young age. I was working for my mother from a very young age, helping her out when she was working in PR. And she luckily through contacts was able to put me in the industry, which I was very lucky for. And it's only now with time that I'm realizing that I'm absolutely not interested in that. Where was I going with this? However, I've always been interested by fashion history. I think, I believe that garments throughout time and even now are the most revealing of 
time in history and society. But I've mainly always been fascinated by that era, kind of end 60s to early 80s. Today's episode is titled The Beautiful Fall. I will be speaking about a book of that name by Alicia Drake. Also, fall has always been associated with fashion. The September issue, the winter collections are creeping in stores. It's that time of year where you just kind of refresh, think about the style you want to project for the coming year. I don't know. It's just fun. Today, I am also joined by Anna Karen Nilsson. She is a higher education program leader for the BA Haunts in Business Management course at the Fashion Retail Academy in London, but previously worked as a stylist for various magazines in France, and she will be giving us her insight on the fashion industry. So, although the work of stylist sounds extremely glamorous, it's a lot of packing. It's a lot of unpacking, of ironing. One thing that I've noticed with my parents working in the industry is that it's drastically changed. Anyone with a camera now can be a photographer. Anyone with a tiny bit of contacts can be a stylist. And I'm not saying this in a way of diminishing the work that these people do now. It's just, I mean, obviously, like, press is pretty much gone. Everything's on Instagram. Everything's on TikTok. There are so many brands now. If you know how to knit or crochet, you can have a small business in two seconds, which is great. It just has changed the industry a lot, specifically towards photography and styling. I guess the main thing that I kind of took out of working in fashion for a brief period of time, and I was also very young and incompetent, it's all about the contacts. You need to make sure that there's a good word out there for you and what you do and your work. People remember you, regardless if they met you once or twice, it will follow you. And that whole story I told in another episode about buying weed on set, that basically kind of ended my time working in fashion for such a, like, quite minor accident. And also, when I was working in fashion in Paris and I decided to move to London, I was convinced that with my experience, I would be able to get a job in London. I got here, literally nothing happened, and I had to work in hospitality. I remember when I was working at Fennec, which is a department store in central London, this French woman came up to me and acted, you know, really like like she was wealthy but she wasn't and she was telling me that she was this major influencer and she was looking for an assistant and she asked me to start working for her i don't know why i agreed because she didn't want to pay me she had an office in camden but it was about the size of a shoebox with a desk and i agreed i went she thought she was miranda Priestley. she came up into the office and was like can you run down to starbucks and get me a venti americano blonde roast And at first, I felt kind of cool. I was like, okay, I'm getting coffee for this woman. Realized she was an absolute scam. She had bought all of her followers on Instagram. Like, she had, like, 120k followers, but 12 likes on her photos. She pretended like she had a PR company, like, but I was just excited because I was like, oh, I'm in Camden, I'm working in fashion, but yeah, turns out it was nothing. I quit the same night. That was... I think that was kind of the point where I gave up in London about working in this industry. It's just being a stylist is a very physical, rather boring job. Unless you're lucky enough to be able to travel, it's a lot of waiting around on set, it's a lot of emailing, it's very glamorized, basically. But obviously fashion's exciting, being on a set has a certain like electric element to it and you feel like you're at the right place when it's going on. I also worked as a PR assistant for a bit, which is the same thing. It's just emailing. You do meet some interesting, fun people. I don't know where I'm going with this. 
um, <laughs> growing up, was a big Tumblr girly, big YouTube girly, but I had my entire life a fascination with America. I wanted everything that the Tumblr girls had, although it was impossible for me to get. And I remember this actually quite funny story, quite weird when I think back at it. I assume most of you know about Devin Lee Carson, who is the creator of Wildflower Cases. And they were huge. Like in 2013, you know, the cases with like the floral background and the studs, they were super expensive as well. But I remember being there, 14 years old, going on the website and I messaged customer service and I was like, hey, do you ship to Europe? They replied, unfortunately not, blah, blah, blah. And at that time, my mother was working at a PR company where she was trying to import brands from foreign countries to sell in stores in Paris. Don't know why 14-year-old me like did that, but I basically replied back being like, I work for a PR company, we're looking for new brands to export to Paris. <laughs> would you be interested? I then got in touch with Devon Lee Carson and her father. We exchanged emails for a good six months. Bear in mind, this whole time, all I wanted was just a phone case. I didn't give a rat's ass that wildflower cases were being sold in France. I almost didn't want it to happen because I wanted to be the only one to have one. <laughs> But after like six months, we were sent a bunch of samples. So I literally got about 15 free wildflower cases and they were sold in a few like independent stores in Paris, but they did really poorly and only stayed on the shelves for two months. But I got my phone case. It wasn't the right time. I feel like if anyone did that now, it would be really successful. But yeah, that's my encounter with Devin Lee Carson through the internet. <laughs> I always feel like I'm just dropping really random stories on this podcast. That was a fun time. I remember being very excited. I also, yeah, I come from a family of hoarders. My mother, from her work as a stylist, she always had just like thousands of random clothing pieces and accessories in the basement. And me and my friends would just go there for hours and play dress up. But I think what I'm glad my parents taught me was more about finding the right pieces for yourself. It's also that French mentality of investing in timeless pieces, buying secondhand, obviously, which is not gonna lie, it's getting kind of annoying how popular vintage- I'm not saying- what am I trying to say here? Like, vintage is meant to be cheap, unless it's designer, which I completely get, but I don't know, I feel like, especially I've noticed with Depop, because I've shopped on Depop my entire late teens, but now it's like- just wealthy people that shop on there and it's like impossible to find good pieces so now i've moved to vintage and it's still doable to find affordable things anyway fashion is a vibe fuck fast fashion i think micro trends are just yeah are just kind of ridiculous really just this constant overconsumption, being tired of a piece of clothing after like four weeks like that's no. Obviously, I do get it in the sense that fast fashion is cheap, and obviously not everyone can shop at Zara. Obviously, people are gonna buy it because it's cheap and it's there. It's just kind of heartbreaking, really. Like, the amount, the amount of unwanted stock or unsold stock there is in stores such as Zara or H&M. Like, 80% of charity shops in the UK now are filled with only Zara and H&M. But now also you can spot so much easier like what year a trend was. Cause like you can spot really easily 70s, 80s, 90s, early 2000s. After about like 2008, it's like there's a category for every three years. Like there are, there is no trend of the 2010s cause 
between 2010 and 2020, there's been like 70 different trends and eras of fashion. Like, it's just mad to me. Like, we're running on this treadmill faster and faster till it's breaking, and it's like, we're gonna have nothing left. I don't know. But yeah, all right, let's go back in time. The book of today's episode is titled The Beautiful Fall, which is by Alicia Drake. The kind of headline of this book is Fashion Genius and Glorious Excess in 1970s Paris. It's half nonfiction, half fiction, half essay. It's a nice little mix. So this book mainly focuses on two designers, Yves Saint Laurent and Karl Lagerfeld, which something I only found out upon reading this book, but they had beef, which is fair enough, I guess. They were two of the top designers of that time, but apparently Yves Saint Laurent and Karl Lagerfeld were friends when they were younger, and then fame and fortune and success and partying got in the way, and they were fighting to be the most elitist and successful designer in 1970s Paris. It's basically this kind of expose on that era of fashion at the time that was going through obviously a really significant change. The main founders of fashion houses such as Givenchy or Balenciaga were getting older, getting outdated, needed a fresher, more vibrant contemporary style. A lot of it in France initiated from the riots of 1968. It was just a fun time. I mean, it looked just really cool. I mean, if you were a white man or if you were one of their models, I suppose. This book just has a lot of great references in it. It's definitely a bit more historical, not really fiction, although apparently a lot of it was kind of exaggerated by the author. If you are interested in this era of fashion, which I think a lot of people are because it's endlessly fascinating, but this is a really, really good read. It's really gripping, straight to the point, very descriptive, and there's also pictures in the middle. Who doesn't love pictures in a book? This book as well also samples interviews from people like André Léon Talley, Pierre Berger, Loulou de la Falaise. I sometimes do wish that I had a very like proper put together feminine style, but at the same time that is a lot of maintenance and I just think now that there are like, although everyone looked the same back in the day, I think there are just too many like subcategories and this isn't everything like in politics, in musical taste, in film taste, like there are just so many different categories now of where people fit into what people like. There's just not much unison anymore and no one agrees with anyone and I think that's in fashion and in anywhere else and I don't know, there are sometimes I would say my favorite era of fashion is the 1960s. I sometimes wish I could dress like that, and I could if I wanted to, but also it's like, it just doesn't fit with my lifestyle and how I want to feel within myself. As mentioned, the guest on today's podcast is Anna Karen Nelson. Enjoy the interview. So you are currently a higher education program leader for the BA Hans in Business Management course at the Fashion Retail Academy in London. You were a senior associate lecturer in Paris for schools such as Lisa, Motspe, and Esmod, where you studied fashion design in 1992. And you were a stylist, editor, and fashion director for magazines such as Vogue, Harper's Bazaar, and Elle International. You've also done work on advertising and catalogs for brands such as Givenchy, Louis Vuitton, Burberry, Lancôme, Cacharel, Mercedes, Peugeot, and Air France. Impressive resume. Thanks for having me, by the way. 
Thank you very much. I know you're a big fan of the Dear February podcast. I am indeed. Find it really interesting. So my first question, you grew up in a tiny town in Sweden called Lidhult, which is obviously not the fashion capital of the world. Where did your interest in fashion start and how was your experience studying fashion design at Esmod in Paris? Well, it, it started quite early, actually, um, my interest in fashion, because back in those days, obviously, there was no internet and you couldn't shop online. And the best, one of the best thing I actually knew was when my grandma received the mail catalogues. You probably even haven't seen a mail catalogue, how it works. But back in the days, you got this big chunk of, of um, um, almost like a magazine with pictures of outfits, etc., etc., that you could mail order, meaning you had to go to the post office, put your letter in the letterbox, then you waited for three weeks to get the clothes. And, and literally, I was very spoiled because I was the only girl among all the uh, grandkids. So every season, I was allowed to go for a day to my grandmother and shop exactly what I wanted and that made me having things that other people didn't have in my school because the, the closest clothing store was probably at about 100 kilometers to go and shop and uh, so so it started really really early and I also started quite early to make my own clothes uh, so I bought patterns I bought fabric I also at a quite early stage started to buy fashion magazines the Swedish L didn't exist uh, when I was until I was in my mid-teens uh, but before then there were the, the equivalents and I literally when I found those magazines not that long ago I literally had put some notes in some sticky notes in the magazine with the things that I actually wanted so um, so it started that way I've always loved it. And how was your experience studying fashion design at ESMA in Paris? Very intense uh, three-year degree uh, also the fact that I've never been very good at um, drawing. So what I did, I did a, a pattern, pattern cutting and, um, and design. I was specialized in uh, trend scouting design. Uh, but in the beginning, I, I quite struggled because I, 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 I've never really been good at drawing and I wasn't really interested in it. Um, but I managed to get myself an old kind of personal style in my drawings. Um, and I inspired myself quite a lot of um, cartoons. Um, one of my favourite cartoons um, drawers at that point is name, I think he's still alive, Enki Bilal. Very particular style, quite futuristic. And you, you probably know Enki Bilal, I would have thought. So it was an intense experience, long days with assignments that never ended. But I was actually quite lucky because we were asked to do um, like a work placement over those three years, at least one. Um, and I thought that it was a good idea to do that work placement between the first and the second year at uni. Um, so I wrote a letter on my typewriter, photocopied around 100 letters, got the list of all the magazines uh, in France, in Paris at that time, uh, and sent out a letter to all of them, literally. And I got my first internship between my first and my second year at French Vogue. And that's how it started. So in parallel with my studies, I, I continued being at Vogue uh, at the same time. How were you able to climb the ladder at Vogue? Well, yeah, climb the ladder, yes and no, because we are here talking in 1995. Uh, I uh, managed to negotiate a contract to become stylist and not, uh, once I had done a uh, styling assistant for a while. Everything was negotiated. My salary was negotiated. I was about to sign the contract. 
And then there was a financial crisis hit in 95. And they were not allowed to hire any more people because they were closing a lot of magazines in the same group. So I actually was asked by somebody who left the magazine to come and be with her as a freelance, which was actually much more interesting in long term because I get to work with so many different magazines, the best photographers, nice trips, etc., etc. What were a few of your best and favorite projects that you worked on in your career as a stylist? Oh, that is a good question. I actually think I never really asked myself that question because I've done so many different things. I remember when I was, this was literally more than when I was um, working as an assistant and it, it was at the beginning as well. So I think you have a, a different view on it when you start. But I went to LA a couple of times And we were doing stories on upcoming movie stars. So, and this, we're talking when Angelina Jolie, when she started, Reese Witherspoon, when she started. The list could be really long. The the two times we went there doing that, I really enjoyed that. Because it's also, I discovered LA. What else have I enjoyed doing? There are loads of things, actually, that I've been enjoying. But there have been some some stories as well. I remember going, I was an assistant, uh, saying, uh, going to... Capri for the first time with Vogue and um, there were loads of things happened on that trip but specifically um, the stylist I was working with she had uh, weed in her handbag and she left me to carry that handbag through through customs because so mm-hmm. she would, wouldn't be able to to get caught so uh, stuff like that which is less fun but there was loads of other things that happened on that trip that I I, I don't want to tell that story on your show <laughs> Yeah, another story. So I did a, um, I've been working quite a lot with Air France, doing different things. And, um, and uh, in general, that happened, we did the, the, the shootings at the airport. So we were out and about in the airport, Charles de Gaulle, and lunchtime, all the equipment was stored in a room. Apart from that, the photographer's assistant didn't take uh, take off the big bag of sun. You have to to stabilize the lighting that you put on the bottom of the lighting so it's not falling over. Uh, and we had put those to block the door because we wanted to go in and out, in and out, and forgot to take that. So um, there was like a bomb alert. So the whole airport had to be evacuated. And people who were actually having lunch at that time. Uh, left without paying the bill so I I can tell you that we were not uh, very popular at that moment at Charles de Gaulle but there have been quite a few things like that you need to be open really need to be open I went to on a on a trip to the Caribbean and we were out for with a a French underwear company and we were out on a on a like a cruise on a catamaran and for some reason so we were in the catamaran for some reason we we approached the beach with a small boat we had in the back because we couldn't a coast on that beach um, with the catamaran, so we were in a small boat. And I don't know what happened, but I was caught in a in a in a wave, and literally with my two bags of styling in my hands, with all the clothes and all the accessories, and literally did a flip into the water backwards. So I fell off of the boat with both of those bags. So with you can imagine <laughs> exactly. So you can imagine the the picture of actually standing up again, completely soaked with two big bags of clothes and accessories, which was just pouring with water. <laughs> but everyone laughed. So, so they, they, that's when you're lucky working with people, with nice people, because that's very important also when you travel, that you need to be get very well along with everyone because you, you're really close to each other for a certain amount of days or weeks or 
whatever. I mean, I've been, I had a client in South Africa that I've been, I was working with for a couple of years, uh, four years actually in total. So I went there for two to three weeks at a time and every second month. So, uh, and it was always the same team. So that is when it's really, really interesting and really, you get to know the people, but it's really like important. Yeah, no, and you're far away from the family, obviously. But um, but what I actually one of the things I really appreciated in working as a stylist was that you never you never work with the same people every day. So the world of fashion and press has changed a lot in the last twenty years. We're making less newspapers. Stylists are, I guess, less paid now as freelance. Everyone can be a photographer if they have a camera. Are you relieved that you are now working in education? Well, I yeah, yeah, I love working in education. But actually what happened for me was that, once again, an economic crisis. Hopefully we won't go that far this time in what's going on in the world. Uh, but in 2008, there was um, what was called the subprime crisis in the States. Uh, so big, massive world economic crisis. Um, and the thing was that the client I was talking about early on, they went to South Africa. Uh, they stopped working in South Africa. So they, I didn't, and I, I, my, I earned my living quite well with that client. Um, and so from one day to the other, I found myself without, without clients, without earning any money. Um, so I was lucky, I think, both because of my age it was time if I wanted to reconvert myself into something else it was the that time. was yeah. that was the time and so I actually became in charge of a um, PR agency a Scandinavian PR agency that opened up in Paris so I got responsible for opening up the business find the brands etc uh, so I found myself but I, I, I still had some styling that I did for some magazines at the same time but my main living I earned it through the PR agency which was a, a big transition because I found myself in a position, the opposite position. So instead of me being the stylist, go to the PR offices and, and, and borrow stuff, they came to me for borrow, to borrow stuff. So that was a tricky one. Open up my business. And then besides opening up my business, I got, I got asked by a friend if I was interested in starting to teach. And so I said yes and loved it. I got literally hooked on it. They gave me more and more to teach. And then I sent my CV to other universities. And here I am. So um, there you are. What advice would you give to any freelancers? Don't undersell your knowledge. Never work for free or for little money. Because if you give freelance that, the clients that opportunity, you will never be able, again, get better paid. So mm -hmm. always try to, to ask for a max, depending on the budget, obviously. Uh, also, try and not get stuck with one client because that was literally what happened to me. Uh, be diverse. Styling today is, is quite different. I think I was very lucky at the beginning when I started because I still there was still money in the industry. So no, it's not now. Was, no. So the thing was that we travelled. Uh, we travelled for two to three weeks. Today, if you travel to the Maldives or Seychelles or whatever, you, you can forget about staying more than a week because there's no money. And that's also because of digital, digital um, mm. cameras, because back in the days there were none and they didn't expect you to do the same amount of work mm. back in the days as you do today. Be, be aware of if you want to be, it's lovely to be free, free, freelance, uh, but there is also the risk with it. 
get a rich boyfriend if you want to be freelance or girlfriend very good so now that you teach so you teach business management consumer behavior you're with this whole new generation that's my age what do you think is the most important to teach this new generation about in the fashion industry well at the moment obviously it's all about sustainability but there are two sides of the sustainability because it's all about the greenwashing as well yeah um so at the moment there are quite few big brands that have been investigated i read that actually this morning that uh, asos have stopped promoting themselves as being green friendly because there wasn't that they've been accused it's of greenwashing yeah, it was a lie yeah, so, so that is one thing. And I think also, I think it's really important to um, talk about upcycling, recycling. I mean, we all know, look at the summer we've had about global warming. And we also know that the, the fashion industry is one of the most polluting industries in the world. And, um, and it has changed, but it needs to change even more. I think your generation is thinking more in upcycling ways and... Uh, and trying to buy more vintage through apps like Depop and Vinted. And, and, I, and I think that it's important to look back as well to what it used to be. That's why I really like teaching cultural and contextual studies, because I think your generation, many of you, you do not understand the importance and the relevance of what had been happening before and how that has impacted the industry mm. uh, even today and how it continues to impact the industry and, and will still do for, for forever as long as fashion exists. So, so I think it's, it's important to know that this overconsumption of wearing one outfit and... Yeah, micro-trends and fashion. Yeah, exactly. And, and so I think that really needs to change as well. But it's a mindset. But then there is another thing with your generation. You've been very resilient having two lockdowns in the back. And we can see that there is a difference in the quality between having been taught partly online or even online completely and for those who have had face-to-face experience the approach is not the same so so that is quite interesting to to see but um now i think i think it's a question of educate in terms of sustainability that's the most important because we only have one planet and hopefully it's not too late yet but that's that's what they're saying well, for any of my dear February listeners, Miss Anna Karen here is actually my mother. And you've taught me very early on to always shop vintage, always look at sales, and not in a way where it was like greedy or to save money. It was always in a way to like find the best pieces. And I've I've become a clothing hoarder. I know that, but I've learned to do it in a certain way by you. And yeah, I mean, the thrifting, obviously, sewing, you've taught me how to sew, which you've taught me how to knit. So now I'm able to make my own things. And I think, yeah, this generation is trying to be more creative in their approach. And so thank you, mother. I love you. You're welcome. I love you too. One last thing, just for fun. Last little questions. Yeah, of course. You moved to Paris at a young age. Has kind of the French style and the French mindset of you know having iconic and timeless pieces. Is that is that very you or like what what are like your staples? Yeah, I think that that's I mean that's that's comments that I have every once in a while. I'm, I'm very Parisian in my way of dressing, my way of of reasoning. So obviously, 28 years in France puts marks to how you are. Um, and it was interesting because I went on a school trip two months ago back to Paris. I haven't been there since 2019 before the lockdown. And I actually, the only thing I think I really 
missed was when I was sitting outside on a ca- in a cafe or a bar, seeing uh, that people are quite stylish in Paris mm. in comparison. It's very different, very, very different to what you can see in London. At the same time, what I love in London is that people don't really care. Yeah. It's not like you, you could almost go with just dressed in a, in a bin line and nobody cares. Mm. Whilst if you do that in, in, yeah. in Paris, everybody's pointing pointing at you and uh, so, so that literally and I, I do think that it's not for nothing that there have been books written about get the French women style etc etc because I mean the French women are are known for having a certain certain image I think that's the approach I have in terms of shopping I'm much more quality over quantity if I see like a good jean a good knit like a good coat, I usually think I'm going to have this for many years. And I think that's very French. But I do think also like there are some people now of my generation that are trying to buy items that way. Just buying the classics instead of buying top from Pretty Little Thing that's going to be five pounds and that's going to destroy itself in four washes. Just invest instead. A good t-shirt, a Fruit of the Loom shirt will last you years. And yeah, I think that's a mentality that you've taught me, that France has taught me. And that, I think that's really good. Yeah, and no, I think you're absolutely right. It, it's uh, and you you can see it, like you say, and I, and and I'm I'm asking my students every once in a while uh, about that, and many of them say that they are ready to save money to get a good pair of shoes or have, having that good piece. But then it's also quite interesting when you look into uh, what's happening, what collaborations like brands like Gucci and Adidas, how that affects literally the whole. The whole consumer the whole of, of, of your generation and actually I would say that that started with Supreme that started to do collabs with luxury brands but it all uh, Virgil Abloh definitely uh, played a massive role into that mix luxury sportswear no I, I do agree but then it's also that thing of buying like collector pieces that you know a lot of people invest some people say that it's almost more profitable to invest in a birkin than it is to invest in a property now well i think you i think you're absolutely right i think what you're doing and your job as a teacher suits you perfectly i think that's yeah especially like in an industry like fashion like it's true the careers can be quite short or you never know because it's very much affected by the state of the world economically things like that i think you were lucky enough to enjoy kind of the golden era or the end of the golden era like dad as well a time where there was big money where there was travel where brands were investing advertising now sadly yeah it's changed and so you've done really well and i'm very proud of you and i love you oh thank you my darling i think we got everything i'm very happy that i was able to get my mom on this episode she doesn't talk much about her time working in the fashion industry and it was actually really nice to speak to her on quite a formal level. So thank you, mom, for joining. Following the theme of the beautiful fall, this extravagant era of 1970s Paris, one film that I would 100% recommend to you guys is a documentary called The Battle of Versailles by Fritz Mitchell. It's also voiced by Stanley Tucci absolute daddy this is actually a story that is relatively unknown and that i only found out upon watching the documentary it's been mentioned now a bit more so with this documentary and it was also featured in the show halston on netflix about the designer which was a show by ryan murphy basically in the late 70s versailles the castle was in ruins no one wanted to restore it it was falling apart 
no one gave a shit basically and a lot of socialites and designers decided to basically kind of form a fundraiser to raise money for the castle host an event there and generate enough funds to be able to restore it which is one of the reasons versailles now can have guests but all these socialites and fashion designers wanted to do something fun and they decided to host a competition against the French fashion designers and the American ones. So on the French team, you had Yves Saint Laurent, Hubert de Givenchy, Pierre Cardin, Emmanuel Ungaro, and Marc Bohan, who was artistic director of Dior at the time. And then on the American side, you had Halston, Anne Klein, Stephen Burroughs, Bill Blass and Oscar de la Renta. From the get-go, the French designers were obviously super pretentious and were convinced that they were going to win this battle. They were saying that they were known for elegance in class and fashion, basically. So they had a lot more budget. They did these like crazy set designs, did a whole ballet, had like Josephine Baker open the show. They showed a very formal old school performance. And they were being cocky because the Americans actually ended up winning. They shocked everyone in the audience with a progressive, contemporary, and inclusive show, which was also closed by Queen Liza Minnelli. Also in the documentary, the footage of that night was locked in a basement for years, which I feel like is something that they say in front of every documentary. Like, the footage was not seen for 74 years. Like, that night just looked insane. Like, if you ask me to go back in time and go to an event, this is where I would go to. The guests. You had Elizabeth Taylor, Grace Kelly, Princess of Monaco, Jane Birkin, Andy Warhol, like, in this insane palace. Everyone was just gagged by the Americans because it was just so much more fun. The French were being very uptight. I was just gagged throughout the whole documentary. It's available on Amazon if you guys want to watch it. I 100% recommend. And they also mention it in the book, The Beautiful Fall. I just like everyone wish i was born in a different era and even just like now in terms of jobs i feel like it's just so complicated now if you don't have a master's degree it's impossible to go anywhere whereas my father became a photography agent because one of his friends who was working there had a heroin overdose and then they called my dad to ask if he wanted to cover but my dad was a swimmer he knew nothing about photography. Like, I feel like these things just don't happen now. We all have our little LinkedIn profile and we pray for the best. But there's no point in being pessimistic because there is also a lot of opportunity with social media. We've got this whole tool of communication in front of us. And although it sucks a lot of the times, it's also very beneficial. I was able to find my room through Instagram. I don't know. <laughs> It's just this constant duality for me. I hate this era. Part of me kind of likes it. Although fast fashion needs to burn, period. Like there's no point in sewing and producing that many items of clothing. It's just unnecessary. No one's buying them. People are, but not as much as they're producing. And it's just fucking ridiculous. I've decided on this podcast to only curse when necessary now because I realized I was cursing too much. Stick to the basics, guys. Invest in a good pair of jeans the last few years. Don't buy cheap shit. Also, actually, I am like, the big brands are also to blame because I swear a lot of shoe companies, for example, used to have amazing quality, but now want to reduce price of production and go to way cheaper manufacturers that will deliver less good quality. And then it's just fucking everything up. Even MacBooks, for example, like I've got a MacBook from 2016. She is doing good. I mean, not now that well, but she's lasted me six years and she's not even close to dying. Just the, just the life expectancy 
of things. It's growing smaller and smaller and it's really irritating. Buy vintage, don't buy online. I'm trying really hard to stop. I shopped at Amazon for a long time. I'm trying really hard not to. I made you guys a really funky, groovy, disco-y mix for this week's episode, inspired by Runway Culture and Studio 54. That will be linked in the description of the episode. Also want to give a big thanks again to my mother for joining on today's episode. It was an absolute pleasure to have you and her insight was really interesting. Thank you so much for joining me on today's episode of Dear Favrier and I will see you soon.